Before we start the show, just a quick announcement. Psychocinematic Podcast is running a fundraiser in honour of World Mental Health Day on the 10th of October 2023. The theme for this year's World Mental Health Day is Mental Health is Universal Human Right. So it's very fitting that we are donating all funds raised to Yellow Ladybugs, which is an autistic-led, non-government organisation with strong bridges to the community. By donating to the GoFundMe fundraiser, available in the episode notes, your donation to the cause puts you into the running to win an incredible prize pack full of wonderful works by mental health and neurodivergent advocates and creators. There are two prize packs up for grabs with a whole bunch of amazing books, apparel, artwork and resources. Check out our Instagram to see all the prizes in the flesh. And go to the Psychocinematic website or the link in the episode notes to enter the fundraiser. Entries close on the 17th of October. Good luck! Also, don't forget, the Listener's Choice Awards of the Australian Podcast Awards is still open. So go ahead and vote for Psychocinematic if you haven't already. Thank you, love you, and now on to the episode. They just found him passed out in front of their house. <laughs> and they are like, girl, marry this marry guy. This <laughs> yeah, we're on board. Welcome to Psycho Cinematic, a podcast where we analyze depictions of mental illness and disability in popular films and TV. I'm your host, Stephanie Fornasia. If you love our podcast and want to give us some support, make sure you're following Psycho Cinematic Podcast on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And check out our website, psychocinematicpodcast.com, for access to special bonus content, episodes, early access, stickers, and contribute to our regular fundraisers, join our Patreon. Starting from $3.50 a month, you can be the coolest psychocinematic listener there is. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I'm on today, which is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay respects to elders past, present and future, and acknowledge that I'm on stolen land. And I would like to warmly welcome to the podcast a man who needs no introduction, uh, Alex Steed, uh, I'm going to fangirl a little bit now, one of my favourite podcast hosts from one of my favourite podcasts, You Are Good. Welcome so much to Psychocinematic today, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a, really a pleasure to be here and an honour to be asked. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, it's an honour to have you asked to be on the podcast. Um, I know all about you, which is weird, but would you like to introduce a little bit about yourself and, and your background? Sure. I So I co-host a podcast with Sarah Marshall, and Sarah Marshall is the host of a show called You're Wrong About. We host a show called You Are Good, which we call a feelings podcast about movies. And the conceit is, in order to talk about big stuff and feelings and ideas going on in our lives, we talk about movies as a reference point to get to talk about those things. Yeah. Um, and so like, for example, we recently just recorded an episode on Gremlins 2. <laughs> and that's very, that was like for us an opportunity to talk about um, fear and what, what we were looking into, sort of like what we wanted to be scared of when we were children and what worked and why that was, etc. Mm. We've talked about this movie, A Star is Born, uh, as an opportunity to talk about different things we've all been through. Yeah. Uh, and that whole idea is that it's, it's a lot easier to talk about movies first as, as you know, yep. than to sort of talk about the subject matter head on. And then professionally, I'm a business manager for creative people. Yeah, fantastic. I, I think I started Psychocinematic around the same time as you guys started mm. yours. And it was like, oh, this is like perfect podcast. We're sort of both, <laughs> you know, talking through movies and what they depict and 
and how we feel seen through them and how we process our own feelings through films. So yeah, it's it's a great melding of minds today, I think. Yeah, totally. I'm, I love this idea. Um, I do think it is a hard sell for many to just say, hey, let's talk about what's going on in our heads and our hearts for an hour. Um, and it's easier if there's like a proxy point for that. Yeah. So I'm glad. I'm glad we're all figuring out some way to do that. And all of my peers do something similar in this space. So there's a lot of appetite for it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you picked A Star is Born today, which you specifically mentioned the 2018 version of it because it's been remade. This is the fourth remake, I think. This is, yeah. What made you decide to pick this film today? Um, I think when we covered it on our show, it spoke to a lot of people maybe more deeply than some of our other episodes. I think specifically because I have a lot of experience either being in relationships that match an unhealthy uh, codependent uh, formation, kind of like the one that we see portrayed on, on screen. And I'm also a person who, and this is a thing that you see on on either side of that formation often, I'm also a person that has... Uh, uh, nebulously defined personality disorder still going on. <laughs> so, and that's something I kind of recognize in in some of these characters. And I think that you know that's the reason why this speaks to me the most. And and we had people either feel very seen by that episode or people feel challenged by that episode. Mm-hmm. So I, I I think that this is even though this isn't my favorite movie, it's not it's not a bad movie by any means, mm-hmm. but it's not. It is certainly not a movie that I'm like, hey, nothing else is going on. Let's check in on <laughs> A Star is Born. Um, it is the one that in the past handful of years I've seen and felt a lot of resonance with. Mm-hmm. And not for the reasons I think most people, I think most I think a lot of people, the way that this movie was sold was that it's a, it's a grand romance. Yes. Yep. And uh, that to me is like fifth on the list of what's going <laughs> on. <laughs> well, so if that's the case, then that's, that's not great. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, I think that there is a history in pop culture of elevating unhealthy relationship styles to to underscore sort of the, the romantic rigor of them. Yeah, yeah. And maybe only recently-ish are we coming to a place where we're truly dis- demystifying all of them. Yeah, and I, I did end up watching, because I'd never seen any of them, I ended up watching the 1954 and the 1967 film oh great and it's it was interesting that that uh sort of toxic relationship style was there in each of those iterations Mm. um and is in this like modernized version of it as well and I think that tells you how deeply entrenched that is in film and how growing up and watching films like this we sort of saw that as that's the ideal sort of love story where it's not very healthy, very dramatic, right. yeah, lots of harm. Very consuming. Yeah. And- I think that we have a, there's a, there's a lot going yeah. on psychologically, culturally for sure, speaking sort of about the, the, the sociological expectation, but also just, I think that there is some theoretical comfort for a lot of people in the idea of being consumed mm, yeah. in some way by something. And it has more validity because it engulfs yes and uh you know this uh this certainly offers a perspective on that 100 <laughs> <100%. laughs> 
And had you not seen this prior to this conversation? I did see the um, latest version, uh, the 2018 okay. version, and I. But I, yeah, I didn't actually remember a lot of it, so it was it was good to to rewatch. And I, I didn't end up seeing the the very first one, the 1937 one, but I don't think I could find it anywhere. The Garland is that's Judy Garland. Judy Garland then? is 1954, and then 19. 19- oh, she's 54. Yeah, Great. and 1976 is uh, Barbara Streisand. Right. Yeah. Course. So 1937, I have the notes here somewhere, but yeah, some other people. <laughs> Sorry. Some others. Some others. <laughs> I might go through the plot and sure. feel free to jump in uh, anytime. Perfect. I've taken it mostly off Wikipedia, but with a little bit of editing down. So the story of A Star is Born, 43-year-old Jackson slash Jack Maine is a famous country rock singer privately battling an alcohol and drug addiction. He meets 31-year-old Ali at a drag bar where he goes to drink when he runs out of booze, who works as a waitress and singer-songwriter. Jack is amazed by her performance and they spend the night talking to each other, where Ali discusses her unsuccessful efforts in pursuing a professional music career. Ali shares with Jack some lyrics that she has been working on and they connect, while Ali can tell he is quite dependent on alcohol. Yeah, the whole time I was like, and I've and I've been pals with people who are this far in to drink and I've had my own struggles in this arena but not not as far as where jack is and the entire time she was meeting him for the first time i was like he must only smell like yeah yeah based on how (laughs) much he's consumed like that's where he's at like that's that's how much he has consumed to this point that you've seen on screen yeah he is he's advanced in his struggle yeah yeah i have i had that thought too and like imagine how much how he must smell at the moment and you know totally. they're having this very intimate first meeting yes and, she, and he is and she's quite aware like she seems quite aware For that sure. he is drunk most of the time while, while they're together because spoiler alert she recognizes this in men yes exactly um so jack invites ali to his next show uh, despite her initial refusal she attends and with jack's encouragement sings shallow on stage with him Jack invites Allie to go on tour with him and they form a romantic relationship. In Arizona, Allie and Jack visit the ranch where Jack grew up and where his father is buried, only to find that Bobby, his brother, played by Sam Elliott, uh, had sold the land, which was converted into a wind farm. Angered at his betrayal, Jack attacks Bobby, who subsequently quits as his manager. Before doing so, Bobby reveals that he did inform Jack about the sale, but Jack was too drunk to notice. While on tour, Ali meets Rez, a record producer who offers her a contract. Although visibly bothered, Jack still supports her decision. She starts to excel in the pop music sphere. Jack misses one of Ali's performance after he passes out drunk in public. He recovers at the home of his best friend, George Noodles Stone, played by Dave Chappelle. And his wife and daughter are playing themselves as well. Oh, I didn't realize I th- that. I'm not That's sure if his wife, but definitely his daughter. That's his daughter. Huh. And later makes up with Ali. There he proposes to Ali with an impromptu ring made from a loop of a guitar string and they are married that same day at a church ministered by a relative of Noodles who very much pushes them into getting married that day. (laughs) Yeah, they're like, this is like, I thought this is the first time I really thought about that scene in a bigger way. Mm -hmm. And I was like, they just found him passed out in front of their house. <laughs> and they are like, girl, marry this you guy. should marry this guy. <laughs> yeah, we are on board. Maybe this will fix you. They say it. Yeah. He says it in the in the beginning. Like, maybe this will be your way out of yourself. Like, um, but what? yeah, not great. Not a great suggestion. <laughs> Poor Allie. 
Yeah, for Ali, for sure. <laughs> uh, uh, during Ali's performance on Saturday Night Live, Bobby reconciles with Jack. Later, Ali and a drunken Jack fight over Ali's growing artistic success. Jack criticizes Ali's new image and music as her success appears to be outpacing his recent decline in popularity. At the Grammy Awards, where Ali is nominated for three awards, a visibly intoxicated Jack performs a tribute to Roy Orbison. Later in the evening, Ali wins the Best New Artist Award. When she goes up on stage to receive her award, a still inebriated Jack staggers up to her, where he publicly wets himself and passes out. Brutal. Maybe the most brutal scene in all. Like, I've watched those, like, extreme French horror movies from the turn of this this century (laughs) and, and like things that are on record, like, you know, midsummer things that are on record as being like upsetting. Yeah. This to me is the most upsetting scene in all of cinema. Yeah, it totally is. And watching the remakes of the, the equivalent of that scene, it's just not, they're not as affecting because I feel like the actors who are playing, not that they're bad actors, but they're, they're playing up the drunkenness and it's a bit more of a, yes. uh, oh, they're crazy rather than right, 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 this right. is really yeah. awful to watch. He really occupies this space. Yeah. Um, Ali's father, Lorenzo, played by Andrew Dice Clay, berates a semi-conscious Jack while Ali attempts to help Jack sober up. Jack jo- joins a rehabilitation program. While recovering in rehab for about two months, Jack discloses to his counselor that he tried to, Wikipedia says commit, I'll say died by suicide at age 12. In a funny and like weirdly the nicest scene in the whole movie is yeah. him explaining his suicide attempt at 12 to his his counselor. I think it's like, we'll talk about it more, but it's strangely the most humane scene yeah, in this entire movie. Where he sort of opens up a little bit and becomes a little bit more vulnerable. Yes, you see, it's the second time he's vulnerable outside of when he meets Allie for the first time. Yeah, and you, it's it's really it's lovely that you're reminded that that's in there. Yeah, that's. Uh, I've got more to say about that later, though. <laughs> oh, I can't wait! I can't wait. Um, he also mentions that he has hearing problems due to progressively worsening tinnitus. While returning home, Jack apologizes to Allie and admits to Bobby that it was he whom he idolized and not their father. Ali asks Rez to bring Jack on her European tour, but Rez refuses, prompting Ali to cancel the remainder of her tour so she can care for Jack. Later, Rez con- confronts Jack and accuses him of nearly ruining Ali's career and being an embarrassment. That evening, Ali lies to Jack and tells him that her record label has cancelled her tour so that she can focus on her second album. Content warning for the next part. Jack promises that he will come to a concert that night, but after Ali leaves, he hangs himself in their garage. Grief-stricken and inconsolable after Jack's suicide, Ali is visited by Bobby, who tells her that the suicide was Jack's own choice. The closing scene is Ali singing an unfinished song that Jack wrote for Ali during a tribute to Jack, introducing herself for the first time as Ali Main. And that's the first time we hear her last name <laughs> as well. Right. It's just Ali. It's just Ali. Yeah. Ali. So says the billboard. Yeah, exactly. Is there anything that I might have missed in that no, there's a dog, and it doesn't oh, yeah. have any plot point, but there's a very sweet it dog sweet named dog. George. I th- What's the dog's name? George, Jack, John, something like that. And uh, uh, the dog is fine. The dog escapes. Yes, days. yes. The dog survives. <laughs> it's very important. Yes, the dog survives a very tumultuous relationship yeah. and gets a good stake out of it regardless. That's of true. That that's happens, true. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's no, that's a, a great and succinct description. You could teach our show a thing or two about uh, plot description. <laughs> <laughs> 
We usually talk about the lived experience of the characters at this point, uh, the actors and filmmakers. And I think it's really probably a good time to talk a bit about Bradley Cooper's involvement in the film because he very much brought his own experiences of alcohol and drug addiction mm. into the role. Um, had had you known much about Bradley Cooper's backstory? We, we kind of so our approach on the show, and I admire this approach very much. But I, our approach on the show is to know nothing as <laughs> as little as we can, um, so that we are focused almost exclusively on our emotional response. Yeah, yeah. That gets us into Which trouble sometimes because people are like, "Don't you know that this person's evil?" And it's like, "No, I don't. Actually, <laughs> I, I don't." I've I've stopped. My brain has stopped uh, making space for any more new information. Yeah, um, especially evil people. Spe- I mean, there's just so many. But um, <laughs> I don't, and I I'm curious. I do. I did have some sense from something someone said in passing once that 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 is part of his past, and maybe mm. he's he's in active uh, recovery. But I don't know about his. Uh, experience and I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing about it yeah um yeah I was interested because I think I had hints I knew hints before I saw the film but yeah he has gone through some pretty heavy drug addiction mm. he was on Alias which I didn't know because I haven't watched all of Alias. the television show the television show yeah that okay. was like his big break wow but he left the show there's an article that says fired slash left so sure I don't know the actual story but after he left the show he severed his Achilles tendon and became quite depressed and suicidal. From what I know, that's a really painful injury. Yeah, that's horrendous. Yeah. So he he ended up being quite um, dependent on drugs and alcohol, especially if he was in pain. That's a, a very common gateway into becoming dependent on opioids. But apparently it was Will Arnett that helped him sort of get out of that place. Oh, wow. Which is interesting. And, Fascinating. Um, yeah. So Will was the one who sort of sat him down. He came out um, to see him and... It was late afternoon and he still hadn't let his dogs out to go to the bathroom. And so Will Arnett was like, okay, you've got a problem. You've got to do something about it. But it was Bradley Cooper, actually, his father passed away in January 2011. And he ended up sort of back on the wagon again to cope with that, which is completely understandable and common. But since that time, he's brought himself out of that experience and um, says that he's trying to find a peace with who he is and it's sort of evened out since then so yeah it sounds like he's got a lot of yeah lived experience with drug and alcohol dependence and this came very much into making A Star Is Born Mm. and I think that he did a really good job personally I haven't gone through that myself but I have loved ones that have and I think some of that seem quite real on screen. Yeah, and I there are certainly positions I think the movie takes through the characters' lines sometimes that I have issue, that I take issue with, but the um I think his portrayal and the portrayal of someone whose addiction is in response to various ways, various experiences they've had and and the way that their life is organized and the way that sort of things were dealt or whatever rather than the addiction being um you know, I think so- sometimes addiction can be painted as like it's like a bad choice that somebody makes, yeah. And and it, it, you know, it's a very, it's almost like a very sort of like carceral, carceral adjacent take, yeah. And in this case, it it really feels like the addictions that he is living with are the result of where he is in his life, not mm-hmm. sort of like a bad choice. Uh, and and that is that itself is kind of revolutionary. I'll have things to say about what Sam Elliott says at the end, but 
Yeah. Yeah. I think he did a good job. Yeah, I think so. Um, apparently he became involved with the show and hadn't worked on the on-screen persona and wasn't even sure who Jackson was and tried to make it like a guy with an earring um, to see if he was that kind of guy, apparently. And then he was like, nah, it's not going to be that kind of guy. So he recalled talking to his acting teacher, Elizabeth Kemp, about using your own pain and insecurities into a role. So that's how he kind of turned that into the Jackson main character. And apparently he actually stole, like when Bobby accuses Jackson of stealing his voice, Bradley actually stole Sam Elliott's voice essentially oh, yeah. because he modeled his voice off him. <laughs> that, that's helpful. I, I was wondering too, if that's a, and this shows how little research we do. I was I w- wondering how conscious of a choice that was, because again, like to your point, Sam Elliott does say you stole my voice. And when I first heard his voice, knowing Sam Elliott was coming, when I first heard his voice, <laughs> this watch, I was like, it's so Sam Elliott. Yeah. That yeah. It has to have been, consciously uh modeled on him and i'm glad to know that because it was it's almost like eerie sometimes yeah 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 it's it's quite he did a really good job of it too and i think it reminds me of that sort of very alcoholic voice as well you can feel the the liquor dripping off his his vocal cords as he talks. yeah he's certainly put himself through it and they do and there's there's a the makeup team um, mm. deserves a lot of attention and acclaim for what they did to make him to make him look just like a little bloated slightly glistening and red which yes. is the way it's when tricky. someone is sort of consuming like a steady stream of alcohol ultimately looks and not like you know he doesn't look like a zombie like he just looks like he's he's living with some extra some extra uh, yeah, stress, yeah. Uh, a lot of chemicals in his body, etc., and and it's it's done in a very convincing way. Yeah, hundred percent. He really he really depicts the character, and I, I it felt natural, and you can kind of you can almost tell that this is not he's not putting on a character like he he's felt this and he's coming at it from a natural place. I think yes. Yes, I agree. I think Bradley Cooper's a really good actor. I don't love, I love all Bradley of the movies Cooper. he's in, but I I do really love him. I love Bradley. I don't have a a bad thing to say about Bradley. <laughs> you know, I think uh I, I there are sometimes criticisms of choices he makes about what to represent and where and how. And I have never, you know, if I make ten decisions, uh ten aren't always going to be the greatest or the right ones. And I usually go into judging other people's take with that. <laughs> so so no, but I love I love Bradley Cooper. I think he's I think that this is great. I I think it's very, very well directed. I think that his portrayal is very good. Hundred percent agree i looked into some lived experience from lady gaga the lady herself the lady herself and i thought she was excellent in this i think she needs to do more films she's actually a really good actress i agree 100 she's wonderful and i've not been a huge fan of her music just because i was into other stuff at the time (laughs) um but she's a great musician like um oh god voice is sensational i went i remember going to a party in maybe 2009 2010 i can't remember when i went to a party and um i remember the bad romance video had just come out and someone played it on a like a desktop computer like a graphic designer's <laughs> desktop computer on an apple and i just cried in the middle of the party watching the music video like i've been i've been i'm not a i'm not like an active i don't listen to, like i'm an old person i don't listen to anything new actively or regularly uh, and it's been a long time since i've done that but i i am often moved by what 
is out there and mm. she is uh, she's a person who I'm always sort of like moved by and impressed mm. by even if I'm not actively a fan I think that the first time I paid attention to her was the telephone oh the best that video film clip, which I totally. watched over and over again I remember that so yeah I remember that's another one where I remember exactly where I was when I watched it it's so it's so good and unique it's fantastic. And you can tell that she's she's theatrical. She's She's got that sort of ability to portray different worlds and stories and things. So I think she, hopefully she continues doing films. Yeah. But the way she sort of has spoken about the film is how she struggled with fame as well and how difficult it is just suddenly shooting to stardom and traveling the world, going from, she said here, hotel room to garage to limo to stage. <laughs> And what, when she was became quite famous quite quickly too, because I remember seeing her on like this talk show called Rove Live in Australia okay. um, and she did like, I think it was Just Dance and um, it was like right at the end of the show, which is when all the performers came on. I was like, oh, okay. And then suddenly she was everywhere. So she really did yeah. excel quite quickly. Yeah, that, that's what I, I mean. I had never heard, again, I had never heard of her before I saw the Bad Romance video and I saw that video and then I have not stopped seeing her daily since. Yeah, Like yeah. 13 years later. You know what I mean? Like she it was like watching somebody tear into the public consciousness and yeah. then just stay. And, and you know, like in my view, uh, rightfully, I think that she does yeah. incredibly interesting things and makes interesting choices and I like her a lot. She's exciting. She makes exciting stuff. She is exciting, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, she experienced that quite quickly. Um, and she also had some traumas in her life that she's experienced PTSD from, which she says that as this sort of excel to stardom happened, she didn't really deal with the traumas that had happened. And then all of a sudden she started to experience quite a lot of pain throughout her body and mm. also mental health issues. Um, and she's actually been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. So oh, wow. yeah, I didn't know about that. And um, I know fibromyalgia can be quite debilitating. Yeah. So given that she's constantly working as well like it must be really hard uh, it's wild her. people who go through I mean they're you're already going through so much psychologically to be in that position and I am yeah I'm not at all a person who um I don't know I have grand I have sympathy for for famous people <laughs> like I don't have sympathy for billionaires <laughs> but I have I, I have sympathy for when people are suddenly under great amounts of stress from attention and everyone thinks that it's like well they have money so who cares and it's like no it seems like psychological torture all the time yeah and then to think about anyone who's and I know I know um Billie Eilish has gone through a lot of like physical pain uh, mm, uh, mm. from various things. And then to see the shows that she puts on, like mm -hmm. to think about that, all of that on top of already like a pretty arduous position psychologically. Uh, I don't envy these people. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it, you know, I think it's sometimes some of that psychological makeup of these stars that make them so unique and amazing that can also make it hard for them as well to live that life. So like one of the quotes she said is, I think fame is very unnatural. I think it's important we guide artists and take care of them on a physical level as they rise, which, mm. yeah, is so true. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, so she's, I mean, clearly. And I don't know, did you get a sense from any of your research to what extent she, if at all, had feedback on the script or did she come in after it was fully baked? Because knowing that it seems either serendipitous or informed that, for example, at the cop bar, she punches the cop or she has. 
has yeah. <laughs> questions ab- for him about what it's like when uh, cashiers take his picture unsolicited or whatever. It mm. seems like that stuff was informed in a way where, I mean, he 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 knows enough famous people where he could ask that, where he's gone through it or he could ask people what they've gone through, but it almost feels like she's speaking through some of this stuff. Yeah, I, I didn't come across how much she contributed to the script, but mm. yeah, I definitely get that sense as well that she helped shape some of those um, nuances of the character and of the story but yeah it's interesting knowing sort of that he's gone through it is interesting because that they went he went whoever went through great pain to make these people saints otherwise yeah yeah you know what i mean like we have a we have a great scene where they go to the store because she's punched someone and he feels really conscious about making sure she protects her hand uh especially after which he learns at the store that she plays the piano and that's these are all foreshadowing things but also sort of character explanation and he picks up like cheetos or something cheetos adjacent and she's like you like cheetos and he goes no (laughs) and so we don't know what the cheetos are for until later we see his driver is eating cheetos he got them for the driver unsolicited Mm. like he knows that the driver likes cheetos and so that was another thing that i was really interested in is it's like there was attention to detail that served making these characters outside of their demons not necessarily unassailable but like to show that, like, mm. even if you've got all of your stuff in order in every way that you do, uh, living with some of the things that you're living with here can't help but sort of scramble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I think that's that. That's a really good point in that you can see that he is ultimately a kind person and a good mm. person, and mm-hmm. it's all these you know everything he's gone through that's led to this point that you know has impacted him so that you don't always see that in him but I also wonder if it's also a demonstration of like how little he thinks of himself that he cares more about his driver getting Cheetos rather than he I feel like his his self-esteem and self-worth is actually quite low so he helps others and he helps Ali but he doesn't necessarily feel like he he deserves that yeah yeah that's a that's a great point and some you know often if you're in it you have reconciled that there's maybe falsely or probably falsely that there isn't a whole lot of hope Mm. for you in that particular circumstance. So, you know, if you're going to bother for anybody, it might as well be the people. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And hope that that maybe that'll rub off on you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'll I'll just briefly touch on the writer team and the, like the original, because I found this quite interesting. Um, so Eric Roth co-wrote it. So Bradley Cooper did help write the script as well. And he's written lots and lots of films. He did Forrest Gump, which is something we covered way early on in the podcast. <laughs> and what I find interesting about Eric Roth is that he was defrauded by Bernie Madoff. So, <laughs> oh, wow. Poor guy. Well, I'm glad this movie, I'm glad this movie. Yeah. Did something. <laughs> <laughs> so he probably recouped a few funds from this one. I hope so. <laughs> And also, oh yeah, he wrote Benjamin Button and he, he actually, oh, wow. yeah. What a weird collection of movies Such so a far. very eclectic collection. <laughs> and he lost his parents while writing Benjamin Button. Oh. So he says that it was his most personal film. And that's important to me because it's the only film I saw my dad cry in oh, when we wow. watched, when we went and saw it. Wow. I saw, I think he did a good job of Benjamin Button, it seems. Oh my gosh. He also, I'm looking at, he also, he wrote the upcoming Killers of the Flower Moon, which I just wrote, oh. read the book. 
Oh, cool. Uh, I just read that book and I'm, I'm very, very curious about how someone's going to handle it and knowing that he did it based on everything we know so far. I, yeah. feel like that's, that's, I feel optimistic. Yes, hopefully it's a good one. It sounds like it's getting a lot of good press. So that's great. Yeah. I'm really glad. Also, la- la- one last thing about Eric Roth that I just find interesting. He writes his, all his scripts in DOS and delivers them in hard copy. He refuses to send digital copies of his scripts. So wow. old school. That's why she writes her songs on a typewriter. Yeah, must be. <laughs> I assume. <laughs> heart, heart, long hand if she's forced to, but typewriter if not, that's fun. So the original writers of the 1937 film, I went down a little tiny rabbit hole because I was interested in, was, was there some inspiration from real life, uh, a real life couple? And there's actually been quite a few proposed real life inspirations. There was the marriage of Barbara Stanwyck and Frank Fay. Mm, okay. There's also John Bowers was, I, I don't know who these people are. Someone like um, I've forgotten her name uh, from. You must remember this. She probably knows. Oh yeah, people. yeah, 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 <laughs> absolutely. No, I mean I was going to say I I, I know few, so few names from this time, but from that show, I know that every romantic relationship uh, mirrors what we saw on screen. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Katrina, particularly Longworth in the twenties and thirties. Yeah, Karina. Yes, Karina. Karina sorry, Karina. Yes. Karina. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So there's a few other people that have been suggested as being the inspiration for Norman Maine, who was the original name of the character. Um, who became Jackson Maine. And there's also lots of inside jokes which suggest in the 1954 film and in the 1937 referencing other actors like Greta Garbo, Catherine Hepburn, Joan Crawford. Mm. There's a lot of similarities to an earlier film called What Price Hollywood, which is released in oh, 1932, which was based on a story about um, Colleen Moore and her alcoholic husband, who was also a producer, John McCormick. Hmm. And also the d- death of a director, Tom Foreman, who died by suicide following a quote unquote nervous breakdown. So it was there was actually um, when they made the first Star is Born that they were criticized for ripping off what price Hollywood. But I don't think they there was any, um, you know, reparations or anything. Um, so, yeah, I just found it interesting that it could be based on so many stories, which tells you. Well, yeah, I don't I'm surprised, honestly, that there are only four versions of this. Yeah. You know, like if you're thinking about people who are and I I am not I live in Los Angeles. I I am around the entertainment industry by no means am I like in the entertainment industry but like you know enough to know that like this is the most common yeah yeah (laughs) like the most common story and especially the story of needing to be attached or married to a man as a woman in order to excel in the Hollywood scene and not being able to sort of make it on your own merits which is still Mm -hmm. an issue I think Sure. Not that absolutely. I live in Hollywood, but yeah. Oh, also one thing is that the original writers team, Dorothy Parker was, um, oh, wow. yeah, was one of the contributors to the script, and she's credited. Oh. But she was married to Alan Campbell, who also was a co-writer, and Dorothy Parker was pretty proud of her contribution when she first saw the film. But then later of life, she said, "Oh, I didn't actually contribute anything of significance." Huh. So I found that interesting. Also, even when you have contributed in Hollywood, being like, oh, actually, I didn't. So, yeah, and there's, I'm sure there's more to that story that would be really interesting to hear about, but just very reflective. I have, I have, I've had situations, and I'm not saying that this is the thing or whatever, but I've had situations where I've looked at 
whatever, a 15 or 20 year old project that my friends made. And I'm like, oh, that was great or whatever. And they're like, you, you were a part of that. (laughs) Oh, I remember. (laughs) So (laughs) how much of it's that or how much of it's like some other thing? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It could be many things, but yeah, yeah that's quite definitely. Funny. All right. Well, how about we talk about? Um, we kind of already touched on this, but some of the accuracy of the depiction of fame, addiction, depression, suicidal behavior. I guess to start with, like from what you know in your experiences, what, what did you think of the depiction of that addictive behavior and also just that experience of being dependent on alcohol and as as a bit of a coping strategy? Sure. I mean, I think like that. You know, he's addicted to alcohol. He also has a pretty steady pill addiction. Mm. That is, I think one of the first scenes we see is him taking a pill. Yeah, yeah. washing it and washing it down with some, uh, yeah. washing it down with some alcohol. We see what he's sort of up against right up front. Yeah, and you know, I think that that what we know from a lot of his exchange with Ali and with his with his brother, played by Sam Elliott. Uh, he was raised by a father who himself struggled with alcohol and, mm. and maybe drank himself to death. Not entirely, not entirely sure how he went out. And then he was left to be raised by his brother. Yeah. And his brother, it sounds like maybe he went through some stuff as well as yeah. a result of his relationship with his father. And I think like what is most important to highlight, particularly for people I know who, you know, live with or or are on for ideally for now and forever on the other side of alcohol addiction or, or pill addiction, it, I think it's important to point out that these things are symptoms of other stuff he's going through yeah and he and he is going through not having dealt with in a substantial way the unresolved trauma of how he grew up yes and maybe also being genetically susceptible to uh addiction more than other people yeah 100 percent. yeah and so i thought that that it was good because i think often alcoholism is portrayed as a specific form and you you spoke to this earlier a specific form of like turned up belligerence yeah meaning like it's a it's a slurring hand on the bottle menacing and and, and it can be mm. depending on mm. sort of like what person someone's going through it can be all of these things but often, and, and often the people I know and love who have had their struggles, um, and myself when I've had these struggles, the issue is it's not, it's almost not, not always that, but for some it's never that. Yeah. And as a result of it being never that, it becomes extremely difficult for you to see that there's an issue, mm-hmm. um, often because it's very difficult for other people around you to see that there's an issue. Yeah. And obviously, like, it's known that he has an issue. His driver is tasked with helping him find more to drink after he's finished a full bottle. But also because he is famous, there's this financial infrastructure around him where the people who are most incentivized to maybe let him know he has a problem, their livelihood is dependent on him making it to another day. Yeah. And maybe getting in front of this problem is a long-term fix, but it also could disrupt the livelihood tomorrow. Exactly. And so, so that ends up sort of getting in the way. So there are these structural issues with regard to 
what makes it possible for you to see yourself, for other people to see you. There are these these issues with regard to what he has been experiencing that he's able to resolve or not able to resolve. There's, um, we know Ali's father uh, uh, is in recovery, is, is my assumption, based yeah. on sort of like what their relationship is now versus what we've heard hinted to mm-hmm. in, her, in their relationship. We know that she pays lip service to forgiving him for a lot of it, but it mm-hmm. sounds like maybe they haven't done a lot of the work together as father and daughter, mm-hmm. um, um, but they do have a, a nice relationship. But yeah, overall, I do like that it is an extremely nuanced, seemingly from experience representation of what it's like to be living with addiction. Again, not because you made a number of bad choices and you're living that addict life. It's because as is the case with many, if not all, there's a lot of other things going on in the background And this, for whatever reason is a habituated form of quieting those things down. Yeah. And because of where he's at and like exactly what you were saying of his, all the people around him, their livelihood being dependent on him getting what he needs to get through the day. There's so much enabling him to continue down this path of, Mm-hmm. in this state without looking at getting sober and actually dealing with some of those things that have uh, contributed to him. Right. Yeah, it's like it's a vicious, I wouldn't even say it's a cycle, it's just it's 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 a system. Yeah, a vicious system. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's like the same, and, and enabling doesn't always look like everyone around you knows better, but they're like, I need a paycheck tomorrow, so yeah, keep going. No. Enabling looks like the fact that we're all still working, even though the fucking planet's burning. Down. Exactly, like yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a dependency on a particular type of system, because if you slow down... Yeah. Um, you go down with it. And and so that is often what enabling actually looks like. I think in particular with like uh, fame and entourages and stuff like that, a lot of people think that it is, it comes from the fact that like people have like bad designs on you and they, they want, you know, all, all they care about is them. And it's like, no, they're just another financial ecosystem yeah. that has an incentive to not always do the right thing mm-hmm. and to not see that they're not doing the right thing. We talk about this, I talk about this with clients actually is Mm -hmm. is you know how do we know if or when there's a time you know to sort of check in on stuff yeah um and i think that that might be a new question for the talent manager to ask um because historically it's not always a thing that's been first and foremost in the Mm -hmm. in the minds of the people doing the job and ali's kind of caught up in that as well because like the fact where he finds ali is on the pursuit of getting alcohol like if if it wasn't yes. for that, they wouldn't have met each other. If it wasn't for going to the drag bar and having a drink, they you know she wouldn't be where she is. So it's like it's all very much tied up in in a very complex way, right? Where it's actually been a conduit for things happening. So it's a very it's it's quite a complex relationship. It's not black and white. It is down to the down to the fact that when she visits him at his like celebrity rehab facility uh which is quite nice Um, (laughs) it's beautiful very beautiful really showing us what the rest of us are missing out on uh (laughs) she goes to visit him and you know pitches that if you don't want to come home to me that's fine and he's very perplexed by this suggestion and it's a it's a again like this this to me there are all of these pieces of like codependent Mm. relationship formations Mm. because she's like anticipating what his needs going to be and like Mm. is trying to fulfill that need before even like having a conversation about the need and like that ends up leading to the confusion in addition to just the fact that he is absolutely obtuse in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. um but she she's anticipating that need and says hey if you don't 
want to come home to me, that's fine. I imagine there's a piece of you that doesn't want to because like it's in our relationship that a lot of your drinking has been happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and to your point, that began, the relationship began on his, pers- he just drank a full liter of whatever yeah, he was he drinking. Was and drunk then has, when they met, yeah. Yeah, and then has maybe five or six other drinks at the bar at that scene. So, so it, it, you know, it kicks off in that way. Yeah, so what does it look like sober? And is it going to be I, good? <laughs> absolutely, and I yeah. think it's important. This this was brought up when we covered the show and and I'm curious I don't know if you came up across any of this but one question that we had when we did our episode on this is it's like what is his band like is he a country he is a country rock singer but like Mm. he's not a country singer he's not a full rock singer and a lot of people pointed out similarities I don't know again I don't know if this was intentional in the writing and again I imagine it might be that there's a lot of parallels to the drive-by truckers and Jason Isbell's band Mm. um and because they sort of perfectly occupy the like middle ground between like rock and country. Jason Isbell had like a very famous sort of stretch like Jackson Maine did, um, is ideally is on the other side of it in recovery, et cetera. So, um, that's just a thing that I wanted to note that if, if there is, if that isn't an actual connection, let's just make it a real connection. (laughs) (laughs) I did find out like who the band that helped sort of train him to look like he's playing it. Uh, Lucas Nelson and promise of the real. Uh, yeah, yeah. Who is it? Who are like best friends with the Isabel situation? Yeah, and Willie Nelson is mentioned in the movie yes, because yeah. like his brother's now Willie Nelson's tour manager. Yeah. So yeah, that that was obviously very deliberate. Oh, and I guess one of Jason Isabel's songs is in the movie as well. There you go. They perform it. Yeah. And one of the other um, sort of inspirations was Neil Young and Crazy Horse. I that think so. Totally. Yeah, definitely got those vibes as well. Yeah, because like the music was actually even though it was like for the film. It was really good. It was great. Yeah. It's all, I mean, clearly all made by people who really do this stuff. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is important. And it was filmed in Coachella as well. So it was filmed oh, wow. to, to look like a real concert because it was a real concert. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. On the note of uh, what you were saying about, you know, all the different systems contributing to the alcoholism, I just I just want to touch on that because I had lots of thoughts. The, like you say, there's that genetic precursor. There's probably... Like we know that his mother died in childbirth as well. So there's probably some unchecked grief sure. as well. And the fact that his brother raised him meant there's another child there that had to step in as a caretaking role, which is very disruptive for that sort of natural mm. development of independence, healthy boundaries. Um, it can lead to very codependent relationships because they were very codependent Um mm. They had a very tumultuous relationship, Bobby and Jackson, but they're very, you know, Jackson depended on Bobby. And I think part of the issue there was that Jackson never learned how to be an independent adult. Like he was still kind Mm. of trapped as a kid relying on others. Like Bobby had to tuck him into bed. And I think what happened when Allie came along is she sort of took over that that caring role, especially when Bobby... Right, because it sounds like she had to do that for her dad too. Exactly. So she was already sort of primed to need to take that role over. So she sort of stepped into it very willingly, I guess, whether she realized it or not. Whether it was and these are this is what I recognize the most in this movie is mm-hmm. like I have been a person who's had to take care of a parent for both uh, physical well-being issues and issues related to sort of psychological ineptitude I would say and then have it landed in relationships with people 
who have been either very, very, very taken care of or very, very, very neglected mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and a, a formation looking not unlike what this relationship looks like uh, is familiar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll say it's familiar. Yeah. I've been here. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's hard not to, without consciously doing it, seeking out this kind of relationships or finding yourself in that sort of relationship where you're becoming that sort of parent figure or care figure um you know there's points in which she sort of goes you know if you do this again like when she comes and finds him at his friend's noodles house like if you do this again I won't be there Mm -hmm. but that obviously progresses and I wonder if that's why he proposed to her as well being like well just I need you (laughs) I can't I I don't need you to I can't have you leave um so she feels that she has to be there and then it goes to like when he pees himself on stage saying it's not your fault which you know I'm of the mindset that yes addiction is it it is in some way a disease I think in that it's it's not something it's not a choice but I think there's still accountability yeah totally I in I never know I don't feel like I have an authoritative place to fall on like where what meets what in that arena mm-hmm. and and not in a way that is trying to be evasive or effusive about accountability or to say that things have to be hyper accountable And obviously, you know, we have to sort of own what we have done or where we have been all as people and then use that to move forward constructively. I have been with people, I think, who have been shitty and I understand the reasons they've been shitty, but it doesn't mean that they haven't been shitty. Yeah, And I have also been a fucking stormy mess uh, from results of stuff that I've been through, um, not knowing how to sort of show up as a fully sort of functional adult. And myself have have let people down according, mm. you know, sort of let people down accordingly to where I've been, and the the place where I I bring up sort of not knowing where the line is necessarily on on accountability is yeah again I I think accountability is extraordinarily important with regard to uh, saying I need to grow and incorporate this and move this forward and that's mm. extremely important in, in maturity and moving forward. The the question I always have with regard to like again this question at the end that. Sam Elliott says is it's like it's nobody it's nobody's fault but his fault yeah it's like well uh a lot's happened <laughs> like oh you a can't lot, just blame him solely <laughs> right like a lot has happened in his life like mm-hmm. and I'm not saying again like I, I by no means when he says she's ugly in a fight because he's that's that's uh you know was that hurtful was that bad should he not have done that should he apologize like absolutely Mm, mm. i'm not forgiving any of that but you know it sounds like this is not a person uh he on his end her on her end were not necessarily uh given a fighting chance to not learn this stuff in a very messy in real time way. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it sounds like they're learning how to be adults at 42 and like 27. <laughs> when the entire world is watching them at the same time. So right. they've got no chance. Right. I mean, they do have a chance. Right. And, and, that, there, but... <laughs> and there have been people who've been and I, I, not, I don't know what this is. I'm just saying it out loud, but there have been people who have been in ways like vicious or despicable to me. Mm. And I want to own and acknowledge um, the places where that's been uh, hurtful and had negative impact and whatever has done things to me, but I'm still, and I don't know if this is like a codependent thing. Like, I don't know if this is just like an empathy. I don't know what this is. Like I have great still despite despite the hurt great empathy for them because i know that they didn't 
wake up and say, I'm going to be vicious. I know that there's still some fucking seven-year-old version of themselves receiving, you know, some form of neglect or abuse or whatever and like lashing out later because no one has been taught well Mm. uh how to go about being like we're not even taught how to like balance our fucking bank accounts when we're 14 years old let alone how to be decent people in the world yeah um so I'm sorry, I didn't mean that to be a whole aside about accountability and where it begins and where it ends. But whenever people are like very certain about it, it's like, well, I understand that people come in with baggage, but people have to be accountable. I agree entirely. I'm curious about what they do yeah. um, in order to show up accountably, because often the way that people say these things make me think that they themselves haven't fucked up a bunch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or at least they're under the impression that they haven't. Yeah. <laughs> it's Yeah. I think like everything, it's not that that black and white we miss the nuance a lot in these conversations about accountability and mm. it's all very all or nothing but I think we need to be empathetic but also responsible at the same time totally yeah well if you're not you you won't ever know sometimes you have to arbitrarily draw a line and when I say arbitrarily I mean it's like because there's two poles right there's one where there's like no free will and so anyone can do whatever they want Mm. and there's another that's extremely deterministic Mm. um and it's it's hard it's hard to sort of know and you you often have to draw it for yourself based on what your needs are yeah but if you don't allow for seeing yourself where at least you have expectations of accountability of the people around you, you'll never draw boundaries accordingly in a way that should probably happen. 100%. You should be a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) I go, I pay one enough. Um, Maybe I can, maybe I can flip it. (laughs) Well, Jonah Hill would say you can. On that note, I really want to talk about the rehab because like what you've said really highlights how when treating alcoholism or substance abuse or addiction, I was reading, I think it was a YouTube video who was talking about this. There's usually two different ways that rehab facilities will treat it. They'll treat the symptoms, they'll treat the the triggers to want to um, engage with substances and reduce that need. Mm-hmm. And then there's the like dealing with the trauma and the reason behind it. So, you know, there's the view that it's just a medical disease and you just treat that. And then there's a view that you treat what's underlying. It's There's always mm-hmm. something underlying um, the need for substance use. But what we tend to know is that it's better to treat both of those things. Right. Because... You can't really have one without the other because especially if, you know, if Jackson was to go through his trauma and actually unpack some of that and try and sort of reframe some of the things that have happened to him so that he can learn how how to be essentially, Mm -hmm. that can be really um, difficult to process and go through and that's a high risk time to engage with substance as as your coping strategy. So you kind of have to learn new coping strategies, but also relearn some of those unhelpful belief systems, et cetera, that kind of get you to using those negative coping strategies, if that makes sense. No, it makes sense. Well, and he also, he has this tendency that's expressed that I noticed this time where I always talk about in dealing with either uh, substance related stuff or like unchecked manic response or whatever is like, sometimes there are times when you 
are talking and you you're you are not in control and i don't mean that as a way to like excuse whatever you do but like sometimes the mania or sometimes the addiction will end up kind of doing your talking for you and mm. what i mean by that is the closest they get maybe to talking about the way his father mm. and his relationship with his father has fucked up his life is when it comes up in the conversation between them and he says that my father had more talent in his finger than you'll ever have or whatever mm. is that's not him talking. That's him shutting down the conversation yeah. so that they don't have to talk about that. And that, and I don't think that's him that's doing that. I think that that's like whatever is disordered. Yes. Is yes. Going 100%. like, we need to blow this shit up because we're getting too close mm. to addressing and unpacking stuff yeah. and we the issue can't afford to do that right now and I think what that line says is that it sort of highlights maybe the relationship with alcohol was in order to get his dad's affection and love yeah he needed to drink buddy. he was his drinking yeah. boy. so alcohol was a bonding sort of lubricant for them so coming too close to don't use alcohol anymore is threatening what was his relationship sure. with his dad. So mm -hmm. there's a lot in that statement. And you're right. It's like, no, this is too far and I'm not ready for that um, yes. because that also threatens my view of my dad. And that view of his dad is what helps him sort of get through because acknowledging that your dad was actually a shitty dad and an abusive dad is really hard to do. Yes. Absolutely. Totally. But I didn't like, it's good that we saw rehab. It's good that it was a very nice rehab, which is probably very unrealistic for anyone who's not a celebrity. But I didn't love that uh, when he did talk to the counsellor about his suicide attempt, which was a really lovely moment, the counsellor's reaction, which was sort of echoing Jackson's reaction, was to laugh, like to laugh mm -hmm. together that he broke the fan, which in a way could be a very bonding moment for a therapist. But also it just didn't feel like he took that seriously at all. Like that's oh, actually. Oh, I had the, I, as a suicide kid, I loved that. Because <laughs> the only way you, you could, I could talk about it was that way. And then later mm -hmm. get there. Mm. And I assume the scene cuts and they have a chat. I hope so. I assu I'm assuming. <laughs> I'm assuming at least, but I, I was a person and still am a person who sometimes like a lot of laughter needs to lubricate us getting to the big thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how much of that comes from his knowing Jack's or whatever. We, I don't know, but it's, mm. it's interesting. I had the, I had the inverse response where mm. I was like, that's the only way you could get to me. That's probably the only way you could get to Jackson, I guess. Yeah. Given that that's the only time he really is vulnerable about his attempt. I just, my, my psychologist hat comes on and goes, mm, maybe that wasn't the most, um, <laughs> all things considered responsible <laughs> way to portray yeah. a disclosure of suicide ideality. I didn't say that right. And, and, you know, that scene could have been fine as it is if it came up again and there was like, this is really boring in film world, but like a suicide risk action plan or something to, mm -hmm. you know, next time if you do feel suicidal, what do we do? Like here, what are some strategies that you can use? Um, I, that is you, very boring for film, but it would have been. Yeah, nice. I, I have a, I have an issue with being responsible in <laughs> artistically. Like I don't, I don't not believe it. Let me be clear because I, <laughs> we have to be clear. I don't think anyone should go out of their way to be irresponsible. 
irresponsible, like in in representation, or if they know something is notably irresponsible, mm. or or that some specific way of portrayal trigger is trigger. Like yeah. I I don't think people should go out of their way, but like I do think it is sometimes important to like if you're showing the humanity of a situation and trying to like show what that humanity might look like in an actual exchange, not shoehorning the by the book appropriate mm. way to handle a thing into a fictional narrative. Yeah, that's fair. I think that if we, st- we again, we should be responsible with things that we know. I, I absolutely, I believe that. But I do think that like once we start leaning too far into the responsibility of fictitious narrative into like what is psychologically appropriate at the moment, not only are we going to get really clumsy about narrative, mm-hmm. you're going to have a shitload of very outdated things 20 years from now. Oh, that's that's a very good point. Yes. <laughs> you know, because some study will happen where they're like, nope, actually, we just learned this and everything that we did to dictate what the right thing to do was in 2018 is is actually very wrong. Now. Yeah, that's a very good point. And it's hard to remove myself. And that's why I often get people <laughs> like my husband, who was a film student to go, but that doesn't make thematic sense if they did that stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not always the way that it should be. And I guess on that note, I do think that the depiction of the suicide was pretty respectful. Yes, I was surprised in some ways. It didn't feel glamorizing. It felt appropriately upsetting without being too like we don't actually see it happen which I think was a responsible way to portray it it's somehow the balance of it being real somber Mm. sad but not like lingering on the actual violence of the scene in a Mm. way where sort of imagery can be triggering yeah we have a far enough shot from outside of the garage where we know what has happened we see the dog waiting which is devastating yeah yeah and in some ways I think that there was a responsibility there with regard to being like god I mean in my lowest moments um if you were like your dog's gonna be upset I'd be like all right I'll Uh, you know, give me 90 seconds to go to, to fucking flush this ideation out and then yeah, yeah. I can get to the other side. But it, by way of it showing the immediate effect to the mm-hmm. to your loved ones and your intimates, like there was, I thought it was extremely well done. Mm-hmm. And if, if I'm sure there are people who, who don't think that, and I'm sure there are great reasons to don't think, I don't know, but I thought it was great. Mm, I didn't actually read any criticisms of it, apart from the fact that it sort of implies in the film that it was the conversation with Rez that sort of triggered him the the conversation saying you know you're ruining Ali's career and you're an embarrassment but I disagree I don't think that looks like the one trigger and we know that suicide isn't the result of one thing there's usually sure. so many um, <laughs> there's usually children. 43 years of stuff that's yeah happened. <laughs> you're negating all of that um yeah. but you also can see lots of signs that he's not expecting to live much longer like um when a friend comes over to their house like heaps earlier and that look at all these records he says take whatever you want like that's yeah a, yeah yeah that's a yeah, sign he says that, that to andrew dice clay yeah. yeah 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 that's right and also like the how how he sort of ties loose ends with his brother and smooths over that relationship i i think i agree i mean it's not a single thing i do think the thing that that spoke to the conversation with Rez is again, it's like a critique of capitalism. Yeah. It's like yeah. that guy's primary interest mm. is. I think that they did such a good job of, of illustrating that type of manager. Yeah. Because yeah. 
this is a person who like, for sure, I believe he has some of Allie's interest in mind. He's also making 10 to 15% of everything that she makes. And so sitting through a situation where Jackson in his mind fucks up his cash flow because he's pissed himself on stage at an award show. That's part of his incentive. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously that's part of anyone's incentive is making money in that situation. But there are certainly people who are better with that than others. Mm -hmm. And this is a person who from the get, like we see in an an earlier conversation that this guy like snipes at Jackson's drinking and not in like a constructive way. No, no. Yeah. And I liked that. I agree. By no means do I think it's one thing that this like individual did. But the fact that the way that capitalist structure deals with this is like, you actually are getting in the way of our ability to accumulate capital. Um, We're going to speak very insensitively about what you're going through right now in a way that may be triggering in addition to all of these other things. Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's extremely resonant to, yeah. to many i think that's what this film does really well in a in a i don't know if the earlier iterations were as accurate because i wasn't there then but <laughs> it feels like it's pretty true to how brutal the fame game is one thing that it only briefly touches on but would be a huge part of jackson's mental health would be the fact that he's losing his hearing and his tinnitus is getting worse yes. And we really, he barely speaks about it. He kind of, there's that scene where there's a professional like figuring out his monitor so that he can hear better, but he refuses to wear it and think it's uncomfortable. But given the fact that he's a musician and hearing is a big part of that and he's struggling with that and that's getting worse throughout the film, like that would make a huge impact, particularly if he's already got such low self-worth and the joy he gets out of life is his music and then he can't even do that that would have a huge impact on his mm-hmm. ability to keep going it's also am i reading that scene wrong but do we learn that he gets the tinnitus from trying to hang himself the first time oh i did he not i did not pick that up but that might be it he says that it's a thing that happened when he was a yeah. kid early on and then and then he's describing it getting worse and i could be making Making a leap from conflating some stuff. I certainly am, am riddled with ADHD in a way that makes following along sometimes difficult. But I don't know if it's because he says that in essentially the same breath mm-hmm. as telling that story or if that story led to that. But I'm nearly sure that the way that that happened or the starting point is from his failed attempt uh, from hanging from the, um, the fan. fan yeah. the I think that, that would make sense. And I can't believe I didn't think of that because I did look up a bit about tinnitus. It can be a result of damage to the ear and auditory system from brain injury or head injury or earwax buildup Mm. and it's common in musicians so it could be very likely that because of that injury that's where it started yeah i think so and it's like as far as symbolism goes holy holy yeah you can get um, more symbolic yeah yeah totally and that's what the pills is i didn't pick up on this in the film but the pills that he's been prescribed for are for tinnitus because often antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications can be prescribed for tinnitus to alleviate some of the emotional effects of it he does I do want to point out though he does have like a prescription he's supposed to be taking but when he's getting the shot of steroid he's surreptitiously given a package of pills yeah. that I don't think he's prescribed yeah. and he says he has a real doctor feel good situation and he says to the doc- you know he says kind of under his breath thank you to the doctor who's given him this bag of pills he's not supposed yeah, to have yeah yeah That's right. I just, I feel like it was kind of glossed over that the tinnitus could be making such a huge role in his mental health because that would be a huge part of it to me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think like it's, I do think they leave a lot 
in a way that I think can sometimes be frustrating and also a way that I really appreciate. I think they show you all the pieces yeah. and they're like, depending on when you're coming into this, you'll get different things mm-hmm. out of this. For that reason that again, from like a narrative standpoint, I'm I'm often a little against doing things that are always sort of the most socially responsible mm. thing in the name of art. Also, it can be really, if it's in your face, it's a bit too in your face. That, and it's like also the re- when 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 there's this discourse, and again, I don't know if this is true or not, but when there's whatever discourse that happens where it's like the younger generation doesn't love to see sex in movies for X, Y, or Z reason, um, is like, I don't, I don't care <laughs> because it's yeah, art yeah. and it should be challenging and you should have to use your brain to engage it i don't at all think that we should make art so that literally everyone feels a both like comfortable and socially taken Mm. care of throughout the process it's art like it should be sometimes disorienting and sometimes leave stuff for you to have to figure out yeah i think it makes it more able to be discussed and unpacked when it's more subtle and not as responsible i think it's in some cases when it's so ridiculously irresponsible or not accurate that it almost makes fun of the experience where it bothers me the most. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, to the point, again, it's like Jackson's going through a lot. It's mm. a lot on a lot. And it's I think it's hard to identify what thing it might be. Is it the fact that he's aging and nearing a place of forced retirement mm. from malady? Is it the fact that that malady was created in part by the trauma, not just not just metaphorically, but literally? Mm. Is it the fact that they have all of this unresolved stuff and he can't quite touch it? Like it's any number of things, which again, to me, is the truer to life piece of capital G, capital T going through yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's sometimes hard to nail down what explicitly or specifically it is sometimes it's a lo- all of it at once and sometimes it's one thing at a mm. time and I think compared to the the other two versions that I saw it does it the best particularly the the scenes where he ends his life in the first in the first two films he walks into the ocean which sounds really awful um and then <laughs> yeah good <laughs> that'd be a really horrible way to go yeah. and then the third one the barbara streisand one he drives himself he just smashes the car and mm. what's her name in the esther finds him so it's a lot more dramatic i thought the character in the 1976 one he's just so over the top in his portrayal that it it gets a bit silly and sure bradley cooper's one this one has fixed all those wrongs, I think, in that sense, in the way that that was portrayed. Yeah, I, I appreciate this movie. I think the only thing that gets me... And I don't know that it's the movie's fault. I think it's kind of cultural literacy's fault more than anything else, or maybe the necessities of marketing or how you sort of position a narrative is that this is accurately or not, or maybe it's because of sort of, again, the shorthand of selling the movie, but this is sold as a deeply romantic Mm. movie. And there's, there's a lot in there that is because we want nothing more than to be seen and cheerled. And this is 
Allie is a person who has not been seen for a lot mm. of reasons and finally gets seen by somebody and, and valid it finds validation in the way that she is seen. But there's also all of these other things going yeah. on. And and I think like partly, you know, it's like the people who confuse Walter White for a anti-hero mm. um, or Scarface for an anti-hero. It's like confusing this for like a grand love mm-hmm. story. There certainly is love at its core, I think it wouldn't have worked if there wasn't. But there's all these other things that I think become secondary if you're looking only exclusively at the love narrative. I've got lots of thoughts on that. One article that I will link, it's really good, is that A Star is Born has a problem with consent, which (laughs) it's a really good read. That's great. And it's so true because when you see all the different points of the film where Ali does something, a lot of it is not her choice. Like when Mm. she comes up on stage with him, she doesn't want to do it and he forces her you know everything she's kind of pushed into including her dad like it sounds like her dad brings his friends around to a house and she's not necessarily I think it's his house as well but like she's kind of at the mercy of men and their choices all the way through the film Mm -hmm. I think that's a really a clear indicator of why this isn't a healthy relationship a lot of the things that happen aren't actually she's sort of talked into most of the time yeah and I and it's it's interesting and I wonder how that 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 all is true and I wonder uh, there's obvious a lot that's happening by regard to like power and gender dynamics in that and I'm not saying that she is not forced on stage but I I also am a person who the idea of if I had something great to sing or say or whatever however I had talked myself out of believing I had anything great to say to the point where like I had internalized all of the naysayers to the point where I would find with be with just sitting on the sidelines mm. I do think that I would probably appreciate a couple nudges mm, mm. in order to pursue an opportunity. Do, you know, does it go further than that sort of thematically across the board? Yeah, probably. But I also understand that there is some countering with regard to the fact that she's internalized all of her critics mm. to this point, to the point where she quotes them and saying that it's the reason why she's not doing yeah, anything. Yeah. And, you know, conversations about consent are always extraordinarily important. And, and those are those are worthwhile criticisms to bring up. But also sometimes in a way that's respectful and coming from a good place and coming from a place of love, sometimes people need to be nudged out of having internalized their worst enemies' ideas about themselves. That's, yeah, that's a really good point. And I, obviously her being nudged led to really good things. <laughs> She became very famous. Yeah, totally. But I I guess there's the sort of dynamic there that's played into it as well. Oh, yeah, the dynamic's bad. (laughs) It's pretty toxic. Again, again, I'm trying to be as careful as possible. I just want to say, like, like, as an individual choice, I understand overall the dynamic where she's gone from taking care of one man baby straight to to another. another. Who she also feels indebted to because of what he's done for her career. So So it feels like she doesn't think she has a choice it's not a unconditional it feels like it's not an unconditional love and the fact that you know when she starts making music that he doesn't particularly like and he starts treating her awfully is another example of of that sort of dynamic like you know I want you to do it the way I want you to do it well I found that so interesting because 
that to me was the muddiest piece of the entire narrative Mm. about she's making stuff that's like commercial and is that real and is she leaving her soul is she sort of putting her soul on the ground whatever he says sort of when they're up up on uh, looking at the billboard Mm. like is she being authentic that's the sort of big question and I don't think that she is Mm. honestly like I agree yeah I don't agree like I agree that like that criticism needs to come in she's she's essentially being taken and molded by this like scooter brawn like Mm -hmm. character um who has these like grand visions for exactly who and how she should be and I wonder how similar to Lady Gaga's experience that was like me me too absolutely because I I think that there was a place for a conversation about that but the movie didn't quite know what to do with it because it is extremely fair and right for her to hear that it's like you went from being like but also I guess I guess it should be said we don't know what her her actual style is because we only hear one of her original songs kind of against her will and then the rest of it is whatever it comes out and so this could be a this could be a wrong assessment about how her career goes uh, artistically not honoring where she started and that's where it's very not like it was an article that said Ali's a feminist icon and I'm like how (laughs) because everything great question (laughs) everything she does is because of what a man wants her to do essentially like there's not it's not she's like really just becomes a exactly which is probably very accurate yeah in a family system in a in a fame system yeah it's a real fame monster situation yeah (laughs) pardon the pun (laughs) (laughs) and even at the end like when she sings her song for jack what i thought was interesting about the barbara streisand version is she sings her own song or at least i think she starts singing his song and then she turns it into her own song Mm. Whereas even at the end, Ali shares her name as Ali Main for the first time and sings yeah. his song. Like even even in his absence, she's still Jack's wife. Well, the the thing that I think is just lost by the time frame that's represented in the mm, movie, yeah, is I think Ali four years from now is going to have a lot of realizations. Yeah, yeah. You know, she's still even when she sings the song at the end, he's passed. Like she's yeah. in it. Like she is in a formation that pre-existed this relationship Mm, mm. even, you know, like she's like kind of in it, you know, I am extraordinarily, I feel like patient and I try to be as kind as possible and forgiving. If I'm up there doing the Grammy speech and my partner comes up and, and despite, I understand all the different reasons why this could happen. It does a thing that is publicly humiliating and derailing to like my success that I also got because it's it's all so complicated. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And she's just in it, mm. and we don't get a ch- because of how in it she is. And there, you know, so many of us have been in a thing where you're not even in the thing. You're in a you're in a formation that was created before the thing even started. Yeah, you, you just the characters are new. You know what I mean? Yeah. And she is so in it, and we don't get enough time out to see her have any perspective on where she just was. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think that she, ha- there is room for her to be a feminist icon. No. Like she's not making her own choices. She's in a current. Exactly. And we don't even hear much of her backstory apart from the fact what her dad does and that we know that there's some alcohol issues in her, in his past. Mum's not there and um, she wants to be a singer. That's, that's kind of the only sort of backstory we get from Ali. 
who is she really? We we just know her as an extension of the men in her life. Right. Well, it's perfect that she's just Allie. Yeah. Because that's as far as we get. No with last her. Name and, and it's again, no disrespect to like Gaga's performance, mm. no disrespect. Mm. I, I think like overall, there are certainly some things the movie could have done to give her like a little bit more of a dimension. And, and at the same time, I'm a person who appreciates like when we don't have a lot to work with outside of like we just have who is on screen and we have to kind of reverse engineer some stuff. Yeah. But I do think that he gets a hell of a lot more articulated backstory yes than she has the luxury of getting in the movie yeah you know she's almost she's a little bit like a fridged character you know like she's like her her tragedy the way that this is sold to many and i guess it just depends on like who you see yourself in when you watch the movie to 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 determine sort of who you side with or who is the main character but i think like for many they're like well this is it's a star is born this is the ascent of this person Mm. it's like no 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 like this is the story of of his spectacular, tragic decline. Mm. And she was used as a means of giving that story stakes. Yes, yeah. Which I think is very reflective of the original versions, or at least the 1954 version, Mm. where it's really all about uh, the Norman Maine character and Judy Garland's character. Esther is really just, yeah. Like none of the films pass the Bechdel test at all. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I'm trying to, it's funny that you mentioned, you must remember that I just texted my podcast partner, Sarah, to see if she had any idea what I was talking about. I know that Judy Garland went through some stuff with like an obsessed and scary director Mm. at some point in a way that felt like it spoke to like some of her experience of what was being portrayed on screen and just knowing like all of writers and this is what like film noir was about yeah it's like it's like about sort of like seedy underbelly this thing's happening that thing's happening it's really just about like disillusioned writers experience in hollywood Mm. is is there's an underbelly and there's a bad guy and there's these bad guys and there's these people in charge all this it's just about them responding to hollywood yeah so knowing that these people were like writing this story speaking it's like another form of the noir story and they're mm. like we're it's fucked over here you guys should know about <laughs> it <laughs> And a lot of these people off screen experienced many of these in this iteration, back in that iteration with Garland, whoever we know with Streisand, they've all experienced, they've all seen some version of this or been been a part of some version mm. of this. Which maybe speaks to why it's so classic and it's been remade so many times. But I think part of that is also the love story and people finding that passionate, toxic love very intoxicating in itself. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is the story. yeah. It's the like the story isn't two people find each other, you know, the, it all works out happily ever after. Like it's the, the tragic story, love story. Yeah, is usually <laughs> at the very least two people who have a grand fondness for each other show up in discordant positions of disarray mm. and can't find uh, harmony. Yeah. Like that is, that is unfortunately the common story. Yeah. Uh, it's just reminding me of um, your Romeo and Juliet episode. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. And it's got like Grand similar classic. themes of having that very intense, passionate love story, but that was always doomed to fail. 
Right, absolutely. Because of everything else. Great episode. Everyone should listen to. <laughs> yeah, we were very lucky in that episode. We had a, It was a really great chemistry. You had um, Melanie Zanetti, who's yeah. a fellow Aussie who we love. Yeah, she was really fantastic. Yeah. We're really, really fortunate. So we're kind of winding up, but I was just wondering if there was any other sort of stereotypes or tropes that you thought were obvious in the film that we haven't already touched on? No, not, not in particular. It was pretty thorough. I would love to know again I don't like things over explained necessarily so I don't necessarily really felt like this was missing but I'd love to know more about Sam Elliott Mm -hmm. and what he's going through like he you know being the eldest Mm -hmm. and having to keep that stuff together like I I'm the youngest sibling and I know the things that my eldest siblings had to go through were very, very traumatizing in a very different direction. Mm. And so just knowing what an eldest had to do um, in that situation, I would be interested to know more. I don't think that the movie is lacking for not knowing that. But I think it's balance mm. of illustrating sort of the bad things, not over explaining the bad things, illustrating the good things, not over explaining the good things, and just like letting all of these dynamics work together. Yeah. I, I think it, it, it was handled pretty well Mm. and i i imagine knowing that cooper was bringing his some of his lived experience to the film makes a lot of sense to me yeah or to his portrait to how he directed it yeah i think that was really the best thing of the film from what i read a lot of people felt this way too is how it really portrays the struggle with addiction particularly within a relationship really brutally but also really well and only knowing someone from the other side of it i felt for that i thought that was really good I think, um, and you're probably not going to like this, but I do wonder if it would have been okay if he didn't end his life because it sort of perpetuates that trope sure. or that message that an addict will never recover. Like sure. someone like Jackson Maid is doomed. There's an inev- inevitable tragedy. You know, he's not going to be able to get help and come out of this and be sober. And We know that that's not true because there's so many great success stories. There's lots of support out there for substance addiction and also for managing trauma as well. And obviously it wouldn't be as dramatic an ending, but if they were going to change a big aspect of the story, I would have been interested to see a less Mm -hmm. tragic ending. Obviously it would have been a very different parting message, but... I think there's some potential harmful message there if you identify as a Jackson main that you might feel like, well, I'm just going to be a burden. So, you know, that is an option. Yeah, I don't, I'm not necessarily against that idea. I'm against that idea if, I guess the the thing that sort of I have an immediate feeling about is like people need to stop getting all of their ideas about where something can land by watching one movie. Yeah. Like that, that I think maybe is like part of where my feelings, initial feelings come from there. I agree with you that I, I do think that there are some potential negative outcomes from just the way that that is portrayed and thinking that like maybe sort of there's inevitable doom if you're in that situation. I also think that there's a narrative convenience because the only way to keep him likable is to kill him at the (laughs) height of his struggle. Well, yeah, he sees that as a selfless act. Like I'm a burden. She's struggling because of me. So I will end my life and not be a burden anymore. Because the reality, which is very difficult to, to capture, is he probably is in and out of treatment for years yes yeah before he finally finds the groove Mm. and and maybe ideally is able to work it out and then very probably loses the relationship in the in the long run Mm. Uh, but like a lot happens 
there's a tidiness yeah. to him yeah. dying, unfortunately. But I do agree that it, it would be nice to not have it seem like the only form of acceptable punctuation is 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 suicide. Mm. Um, and at the same time, I'm a person who's watched a ton, a ton, a ton of movies of people dealing with addiction. And the unfortunate thing is, is when they keep living, you don't like them very much um, <laughs> because they keep, they keep getting in their own way. <laughs> and that's the, that's the reality. Yes, it's it not is. a, <laughs> it is a real, reality. You go to rehab, sure. you learn strategies, you're fine now. Like it's a, it's a long, long, long journey it's of a recovery. Str- it's a long journey. Yeah, absolutely. And that's an important, I do agree that that regardless of how that's delivered, that's a very important message that people are able to find somewhere is this mm. is not a tidy process. No. This is a real iterative, a very frustrating, a very arduous, very hard uh, process, but it's, wor- it's worth it. Yeah. It's worth it yeah. because it's your hard. alternative, unfortunately, is your alternatives to not working on it are bad. Yeah. And it's going to be a lot of work, but it is absolutely worth doing the work mm-hmm. um, for your sake, for the for the love of the people you love for the sake of, of, of doing something in kindness for them as well. You shouldn't just do it for them. Um, but you, that's absolutely a great incentive, but in order to change in Jackson's case, 43 years of stuff, it's going to take some time. Yeah. And I think, like you said, you know, if you're doing it for someone else, that's a great incentive, but it takes some time to actually get to the point where you're doing it for yourself. And that can give you more drive as well, because at the end of the day, having things to live for within yourself, that's a, that's a huge journey to go through. Well, you you have to, I don't have many sort of orthodoxies with regard to how I think things should have to happen, but I do think with regard to this sort of thing, and this is like a specifically an AA trope, like you need to do it for yourself. Mm. Like you, you at the end of the day, you are who you're with at the end of the day, you are who you're with at the beginning of the day, you have to do it for yourself. Mm. What... I think is important speaking to a lot of the things that we've talked about with regard to this movie is that may not be intuitive. You may not know how to do anything for yourself or you may only know how to do superficial things for yourself, Mm -hmm. not, not go deep. And so I saw, I saw a friend and a a writer say something along the lines of like, in order to like train yourself to know how to do stuff for yourself, you start with doing it for other people. Mm. And maybe that's how you start to be able to um, imagine that you're worth it too. Mm. Uh, So like whatever the reasons, like you got to start with knowing that things have to be better and start working on those things and and then getting in there. But, but no, I agree. I mean, I, I think if one is using this to inform what they think is possible, and what they think is not possible with regard to the tragic arc of addiction, you know, suicide, uh, depression, whatever else is going on. I would like those people to know that this is not their only option. Yeah. And there's other films to watch. I can't think there of them right now. Are <laughs> so many. <laughs> so many. There are so many. And a lot of them are a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sadly. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of it's not again the outcome is not great but and it's not it's not as tragic as this but I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Love Liza which no, I, haven't. I think is extremely it's about the character is portrayed by Philip Seymour Hoffman who I can't remember oh, if wait. the grief is that his partner has died yeah. or left him but he becomes addicted to huffing yes I, re- I don't think I've seen the whole film but back in the day when we had the equivalent of cable Foxtel I remember yeah. watching a clip from it yeah that's a tremendous um almost sometimes too real living mm. with 
trauma and addiction movie mm-hmm. but i think it's really great this movie wouldn't have been a blockbuster if it had if it made some of the choices that love lies <laughs> did, but that makes love lies a worth visiting there's a reason why i didn't think of it straight away <laughs> it's not quite a star wars For sure. <laughs> Any parting thoughts on A Star is Born or anything that we might have missed that you wanted to talk about? No, I just want to clarify, not in a hedgy way, but I want to clarify what I was talking about earlier with regard to not knowing sort of where understanding someone's background ends and where accountability begins. Mm. The only reason I bring that up in particular is... I find so much dialogue and quote discourse, which usually if you have to say quote discourse, it's not actual, uh, it's not an actual discourse. I find so much of that to be very definite and very absolute and almost sort of orthodoxical. It's like, I would do this or someone should do this or whatever. And I think that that form of certainty and belief is very comforting, but it doesn't leave a lot of room for you to think about how situations actually go down. Yeah, yeah. And how then to respond when you're actually faced with those situations. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that there's like a very like beneficial and important amount of being humble and being naive in in understanding these situations and giving people grace that isn't important just because it's the nice thing to do. It's Mm. important because it like helps you understand how to operate in some of these situations. Mm. And all of that is to say like once you do figure out what your boundaries are and what is important to you and where accountability is necessary for you to get by in relationships with people, then you can enforce Mm. those boundaries. And then you can sort of articulate those boundaries. And so uh, again, I don't want it to sound like I don't like, I don't believe that everything is sort of should be described in a relativist way or whatever, but I think that it's important to remain sometimes naive in that place Mm. as you're articulating and understanding what your needs and expectations are and how you expect the people around you to be. Yeah, you've articulated that really well. And we can get very high and mighty about situations that might not necessarily apply to our real life experience. And yeah, I think it's really worth taking a step back from that. And I think the media really has a lot to answer for, for how situations are portrayed in a very black and white way. So we can kind of get carried away with that as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Absolutely. we're kind of primed to feel that way. And in the whole, I know we all know this at this point, but like social media makes money on traffic. Mm-hmm. The easiest way to, to generate traffic is to say negative or polarizing things. Mm-hmm. And then you essentially set up millions of cottage industries of saying negative and polarizing and very certain things. Mm-hmm. And that's great with regard to getting enough attention to sell vitamin supplements. That is not how our lives no, are. No, but it's sort of how our brains, I sound like a boomer, but it's kind of how we're operating now and how we... Mm-hmm. engage with media and how we think about things like we've become quite polarizing yes no, no definitely well it's again if almost 100 percent of our exchanges with people outside of our immediate universe or households is mitigated and mediated by these things that prioritize that sort of exchange mm-hmm. you know it is not surprising that that's the flavor of the exchange and by no means to me i think it's very important to be like this isn't a kids these days situation yeah. this was manufactured by wealthy people yeah. in order to it's stay made wealthy. this way this is what they want yes. yeah yeah agreed thank you for that i think we've covered everything this is a lovely conversation i really i was i i feel very grateful to have been a part of it i feel very grateful to have you to talk about it and i think um yeah, you've made me reflect on things in a different 
different way in the film. There's definitely problematic aspects of it and things I don't love about it, but it's it's got a lot of value in it, I think. I loved it for the right reason. So that's <laughs> yeah, all that matters. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's what's important. Exactly. No, it, it was this was really nice. I really appreciated having the opportunity to talk with you and especially hear it be informed by your by your background in these arenas. That was great. And vice versa. I, I'm obviously gonna plug we've already talked about, but your podcast, you are good. Sure. One of the greatest podcasts ever, I believe. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, but how can people find you on social media? I my my name is Alex Steed on all social media all one word so they can find me on what is now known as twitter until it goes down forever <laughs> um blue sky instagram and tiktok those are kind of the big ones and then you can find you are good in all of those same places but tiktok but i do all the tiktoking for the show so yeah find you are good or uh alex steed or both in all of the places where social media happens thank you so much awesome well thank you so much enjoy whatever it is you're going into thank you <laughs> This podcast is not designed to be therapeutic, prescriptive, or constitute a formal diagnosis for any listener. For a longer version of this disclaimer, please check the episode notes on your podcast app.